Hi, Betfolio voice friends. Thank you so much for joining me for what was a really cool episode to record and one that hit kind of close to home for me. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Dr. Larry Garcia of the University of Florida's Veterinary Emergency Treatment Services, or VETS team, to discuss the team's recent response to Hurricane Ian. Now, when I say it hits close to home, that's because my husband is part of this team, and he was also part of the response. My husband's more on the logistical side, keeping people fed and housed and hydrated, so it was really interesting to talk to Dr. Garcia about the medical side of things and how the team supported the local veterinary infrastructure until they were all able to get back online. With my bias fully recognized, I will say the response was incredible, and some of you out there listening may even have been part of the response as there was an incredible volunteer effort to support the people and the pets affected by Hurricane Ian. I also want to note that this interview takes on a little bit of a longer form than some of our past episodes. There was just a lot to talk about, lots of stories to tell, and so much that went into this experience, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Dr. Larry Garcia is a clinical assistant professor in shelter medicine and surgery, as well as the medical director for the Veterinary Emergency Treatment Services team at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Garcia began his career as a general practitioner who transitioned to shelter medicine and surgery in a large open admission municipal animal shelter in South Florida. While in this role, Dr. Garcia participated in multiple emergency response drills and assisted with development and updates for county emergency management protocols and procedures, served at the County Emergency Operations Center and the shelter, as well as providing oversight and guidance to both shelter and field operations. After several years, he was recruited by the University of Florida. Upon arrival, he used his knowledge and experience in county shelter operations to create two clerkships in which clinical veterinary students are embedded in municipal animal shelter operations. In addition, he was able to use his county training and experience in emergency management for disaster preparedness and response as the medical director for the UF Vets team. In this role, Dr. Garcia develops medical protocols and procedures, oversees medical equipment and pharmaceutical inventory, and provides team leadership and training. He's provided support to and instruction in the awareness and operations level animal technical rescue courses offered to veterinary students, veterinarians, and first responders. Additionally, he assists with online graduate level disaster response courses. He collaborates with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Florida State Agricultural Response Teams, and the Florida Veterinary Medical Association on large-scale disaster response drills and disaster response deployments. As you can see, he's got a wealth of knowledge and experience in disaster response and was a huge reason why this response to Hurricane Ian was so successful. So I hope you enjoy our talk. Well, for this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. Larry Garcia. We had you on, was it a year ago that that we did the disaster response podcast? Something like that. I think it was within the last year. Goodness, time flies when you're having fun. Well, thank you for joining me, medical director of the UF Veterinary Emergency Treatment Services Program, which with with my husband, you doing the (laughs) medical side, him doing the logistical side, you guys make a good match. And you recently had an experience responding to Hurricane Ian that came through Florida back in September. And we're here to talk about that because, I mean... It's really unique what you guys do. So can you just kind of give us an overview of 
how that initial experience went. We knew the hurricane was coming. At what point did you know that you were going to go and respond? Well, interestingly, before the event even occurs, we are on phone calls with the State Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services and the State Agricultural Response Team. And so we're on daily calls, multiple daily calls in some cases. We actually partner with the FEMA and IFAS. And so we're all in communication, kind of anticipating and planning and preparing. So generally, you know, a week before we even deploy, I'm off in deep into communications and kind of understanding what the weather looks like and what kind of things are coming. And in this case, of course, we were anticipating going to Tampa and we were anticipating kind of a different event because it's so heavily populated. And so, of course, many individuals did evacuate from the Tampa area in anticipation of a direct hit there. And so that's one of the interesting things is kind of you really start paying attention to the weather. I have no meteorology background, but. But you have been on the Weather Channel. I have. (laughs) (laughs) And that was quite an experience. But it's interesting because I never paid attention to weather before, really. Like for me, I grew up in Florida. So it's like, unless it's a three, I'm like, whatever, it's nap time. And it's interesting how the table has turned. I was actually talking to somebody and and uh, a student said, you know, wow, you're really knowledgeable about the weather. And one of the technicians was like, well, it impacts his life. That <laughs> and, makes sense. <laughs> and, you know, it was funny. I was talking to my wife about it and she's like, because she's very weather sensitive because her sister's a meteorologist. You got to watch everything and this and that. So like in the lead up, You know, we're like looking at where are the potential places of hit, what kind of things are going on. In this case, in particular, you've got several rivers in that area that were impacted that were at flood stage. And so as things kind of the tide started to turn, we started to see that the hurricane was making sort of an approach towards the Fort Myers area, really Naples, Fort Myers up towards Sarasota, it's sort of the game changed a little bit and trying to see what kind of resources are in the area because that's part of our plan. We know where the hit's going to be. And then where where can we set up an incident command post? You know, And that's a place where our sort of incident managers are. So for everything related to animal issues, we have sort of a command center. And that's where all that information is exchanged, where requests are made and things like that when somebody needs help with an animal. and And so it's kind of a big lead up we get closer and closer to after the storm hits takes a couple days really for search and rescue to get in there for for roads to be made safe and to really assess what the damages and what the needs are and so within like 24 hours of impact that's when we start having the conversations of so far these are the things that we're hearing the requests start coming in and sometimes we get a request to support a shelter in this case that was the initial plan The initial plan is we were going to help the Lee County shelter. They requested assistance and basically they were going to be an intake shelter following search and rescue. So as all the search and rescue teams were going out to Sanibel, Captiva and Pine Island, they were then going to bring in any stray animals that they found to the shelter that could be evaluated and kept safe. And what it actually changed because these are ever changing events was that some of the FEMA veterinary volunteers were able to support the shelter. There wasn't as large of a need as they thought for search and rescue in their area. And so what they decided to do was to position us in a central place in Fort Myers. 
anybody in Fort Myers area could get to us easily. And even from some of the surrounding areas because we were so centrally located. That decision literally was made the morning as we were departing for Fort Myers. And so this is the thing with these events. Things are ever changing. You're ever adapting to try to, you know, anticipate what the need is. So one of the challenges is they want to get you on the road. They want to get you there, but they have to give you enough information to determine what you take because it could be seven days before I can get any more supplies, any more equipment, any more whatever I might need. So this was a field hospital situation then? Yes. Yeah. In this case, we were asked to set up a field hospital. And so we bring specific equipment such that we can set up exam spaces and so that we can set up areas where we can sort of have sort of a waiting area, sort of an intake area. And so this way we kind of have a way to process people because we generally don't have infrastructure. We have a paper-based record system and it truly is a mishmash. So we have a 42 foot surgical unit that serves, it has cage space. Um, It has anesthesia equipment. And so basically that serves as sort of our hospital. In addition to that, we set up some fairly large tents. They're about 16 foot by 20 foot tents that collapse down into sort of kind of a accordion format that we can air condition. And so we can get a couple exam spaces in there. And then one of the nice uh, things about our, our multiple trailers that we carry with us, they're cargo trailers, but they're all air conditioned. And so with these units, we can actually convert them into exam spaces. And and so basically we're very heavily dependent on generators in most cases because we're going into a place that generally has no running water, no power. Um, and so it's it's sort of working through those steps to kind of, you know, make sense of things. And so as I'm working through that and making those plans, you know, I have to work on, you know, do we have security? Do we have, because we have drugs with us, we have controlled drugs with us, Um, you know, and then I have a team of of individuals that I'm taking into a disaster zone. And so there's a lot going on in those areas and it can be very chaotic. And so like, I have to make sure there's security. And then, you know, some of the things to look into is, do I need to bring something that will suffice as a bathroom type setup or are there facilities there that are usable? And so there's this whole process of on the phone, kind of making these plans, coordinating things, and and it's sort of a constant. And so we made our way in, and that was October 3rd, and took us about seven hours to get down there, which normally that's a three or four hour trip, even with the trucks and trailers. And for this particular mission, we actually traveled with a bunk sleeping unit. Okay, so, I was going to ask that because you know, you're talking about these exam spaces and and your front desk area and things like that. And you know, of course, I know there were a large number of volunteers that went down and helped. But then, then what do you do with everybody? You're you're working on making sure they can use the bathroom, but you know, where is everybody sleeping? How is all of that working? So, from a logistics perspective, that's the cool part. I don't have to worry about that. So, I test <laughs> that, that would be that would be a, that would be my husband. <laughs> and so, so what we do is our bunk trailer is about, oh, I think it's like 40 to 60 feet long. It's fairly long and it has 11 bunk beds. And so we have that unit. It also has a bathroom space if we need it. And, and so we travel with that. But as you mentioned, you never know how many volunteers 
and, and how many individuals you might need to help support. So we always bring extra bunk beds. And so in this case, it worked out because we did have a lot of volunteers and some drove in and out for the day and then others did need a place to stay. And so we brought enough bedding to kind of help take care of that. We actually have our air conditioned exam tents can also be used as housing. In this case, because it was a sports complex, there were actually clubhouses. And so kind of like gym locker space type areas. And surprisingly enough, where this particular park actually had running water and power. Oh, wow. That's lucky. So we never get that. So we were feeling pretty resort-like for a disaster because <laughs> we had air-conditioned spaces. So when we overflowed the bunk trailer, those other individuals could have their space in an air-conditioned building that was secure. So the other side of that, when we talk about the volunteers and all the people, is one of the other pieces of equipment that's very important is we have a separate trailer that's basically our chuck wagon. It's our kitchen trailer. We have griddles, we have smokers, we have barbecue grills, and we have all kinds of snacks to cover all the potential dietary requirements and things like that. Because well, we know that people in the veterinary profession, if you want them to keep working, you must feed them. <laughs> they, exactly. they will get cranky and angry without snacks. They do. And, <laughs> and so, so, yeah, so one of the biggest things that our logistics team does is they feed all these people. And so it's really nice because you wake up in the morning and you're fed and you're ready to go. And then lunchtime, you break away, have a little meal, come back. And then, you know, at dinner, when everybody's absolutely wiped out, dinner's ready. For us, our 12-hour day is kind of concentrated during daylight for our logistics team they're doing a 14, 16-hour day because they're getting up before everybody to get everything ready. They have to manage getting us diesel into all of our generators because that's how we operate is we're running off of generators. And we have a lot of equipment running and air conditioners running and things like that. So you generally, they're fueling generators as a routine. That's at least an hour of their day every day. And then that's the other thing too, is in general, you know, we're on scene. So for the entire 11 days that we were on scene, I never left the scene because I'm needed there. And so our logistics team, you know, sometimes you need ice. Sometimes you need particular medical equipment, pharmaceuticals. So oftentimes throughout the day, I'm sending them out to go find things. So the logistics team is truly the lifeblood because like they're always on top of all the things that need to be done. And, and it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that you imagine is, so when we deploy, it's five trucks and trailers, 14 people, and that's just the core team. And, and so we're huge, but the thing is you need that because if I've got to go out and find medical supplies and find medications and things like that, I'm not able to do my job and I'm not able to fill the Well, needs. and God forbid it's like an emergent situation. I, I think I recall a story of the Irma response of like having a police escort through the keys so he could go get insulin, you know, to treat a, a diabetic animal or something along those lines. And I would imagine that if you had to leave that diabetic animal so that you could go get insulin, well then, you know, who's caring for it? And, and a lot of things can go sideways. So that, that team effort being really important. 
It is. It's huge. And so one of the interesting things that's a little different about how the keys were compared to an area like Fort Myers and, and Sanibel and those areas there is that you bring up a good point. So in the keys, it was completely locked down because they could lock down all the roads. And so what they're trying to do is to keep people that may be good intentioned from going in and trying to do search and rescue and trying to help and then finding themselves stranded with a flat tire, without water, or without anything that they could possibly need. And so it's very interesting. And I, it was really neat because like I too, we were sent on a scouting mission in the Keys. And so we got a police escort to go down and ride around and, and it's, you know, pretty wild sirens and lights flashing. <laughs> it's like, you know, one of those childhood dreams of right. like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and I've got these veterinary students who are like having the time of their life as we're like speeding through the keys to get to the scene, you know? Oh, amazing. Now Fort Myers, it was too difficult to close down like that, but they were able to close down the areas to keep people out of the more damaged and dangerous areas. There was quite a bit of damage where we were located, but still things were a little bit more on the recovery side by the time we arrived. So yeah, there's very many layers. One of trailers that we take with us is also just all my backup medical supplies. So I equip myself with enough supplies, kind of like I mentioned earlier, for about seven days. And what that allows is like for the airport to open. So when we arrived, Fort Myers airport was closed. What that did was it shut down FedEx and UPS. And so for some of the supplies, we had a network through the Florida Veterinary Medical Association to have like veterinarians in other areas, like say like Tampa, where they could have medications and pharmaceuticals delivered. And then they would drive them into us to deliver them to us. And we also... Through this part of the reason I work with the FEMA is it's very important when you go into an area such as this, and most of the veterinary infrastructure was heavily, heavily impacted. And so we try to get in communication as soon as we can with local veterinarians to see if we can provide support. And what was that like? Like, did, were there any, I, I mean, I, said, I know you said it was heavily impacted. Were there, was there some degree of veterinary infrastructure there or were you guys kind of it for a period of time? When we first arrived, we were it. And, and so much so that they, when they broadcast to the local community, we actually had two veterinarians come by. Oh, wow. And say, you know, thank you so much for being here. We really need your support. And what can we give you? What can we bring you? What kind of help can we provide? It was the same thing with the, the animal shelter. The Lee County shelter was ready to give us whatever we needed. To, to get things going, to keep things functioning, because they had their hands full with their animals in the shelter, as well as animals coming in. And, and so, yeah, so one of the first things I do is I try to make communication right away. Actually, in both cases, they found me before I found them. <laughs> but Saved you a little layer of work there. Yeah. And, and, and it's great because like there were a couple things that we ran out of. And so I hop on the phone. And I'm like, hey, do you have this? Can you bring this and whatever? And so, so it was great. And even as they came online, they were so overwhelmed right. with caseload that, you know, even they were like, hey, can you still handle these things sort of collaborating? And so, for instance, most common thing, can't emphasize it enough, most clients that have pets with refrigerated meds do not think to sort of have some sort of means 
even if it's just a small cooler to keep insulin and drugs like that cold. So inevitably what happens is they continue to administer the insulin that's been warm for days, and then they start to see the symptoms. They start to see the things that they saw when things let up. And so we can do a lot, but one of the particular situations that came on was that it was a kitty cat that was very well regulated. Now it was having problems. The practice was doing basic care, but they had people in the building that could monitor the cat. And the volume of cases we were seeing really was going to make it inhibitive for us to really watch this cat and get it back on insulin. So it worked out perfectly. I was able to say, hey, can I send you this? You know, send me the things that that are, you know, out of your scope. And then we'll send you these types of things that you can hospitalize and monitor. And so were you kind of functioning more as like an urgent care type of a facility where it was kind of like the treat and street model? Or what kind of cases were you seeing? Were you hospitalizing some patients? We we try to be the treat and street model because we really don't have all the nice bells and whistles that you would normally have in a practice. But we do, we did hospitalize a few. There were some animals that needed just, you know, some IV fluids for like a day. We did have some pretty sick ones. And unfortunately, when the infrastructure did come back on, because the people have lost their house, lost their car, lost everything, they just didn't have the financial resources to hospitalize. And so we actually had one dog that was coming in and having IV fluids run daily for almost six, seven days. Oh, wow. What was wrong with him? He got into some toxic substances. Oh, no. But, you know, with the daily fluids and just minimal care... And, you know, we have some injectable medications and things like that. So we're able to kind of support him. And and so we were able to do really good for this dog. And this dog did really well. Oh, good. And it was an older dog. It was like an 18-year-old oh, my English gosh. bulldog. And wait, did you say an 18-year-old English yeah. bulldog? I didn't know they, they, they got that old. Yeah, I didn't either. These owners must have taken spectacular care of him. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's not uncommon in cases like this for, you know, Sometimes there's a toxic substance that's floated into the yard that somebody might not know about. And so much of what we saw were animals that were injured in debris, animals that maybe were locked in the house for several days where they normally hadn't been because the fence is torn down and things like that. And, you know, saltwater intoxication because, you know, floodwaters, there were so many floodwaters. And, you know, even in the areas more inland, it was still at least somewhat brackish because, this, you know, all that water came in. So were those presenting like a cerebral edema kind of case or? Some were kind of neurologic. Some were more like vomiting, diarrhea kind of thing. Okay. And and we were lucky because in our collaboration with the FEMA, there was an organization brought us their lab equipment. So we were able to f- to perform some basic lab procedures to kind of evaluate things. Okay. I also recall, I, I remember I was driving down the road. I think I was going to see appointments. I was still, of course, up in the Gainesville area holding down the fort at home while Josh was in Fort Myers. And he had, he was on one of these runs you're talking about. And so we got a chance to talk on the phone for a few minutes and he was talking about additional goats arriving because I I heard there was a pretty interesting goat case that you guys managed. We sure did. We had a sick goat arrive almost, I think it was pretty much first thing in the morning when we opened the day after we arrived. He was very anemic. And so what we were able to do is there were other goats 
And so what we did is found another goat to transfuse him. And he did really well and is still doing well. And, and, you know, so it's one of those things where you just never know what you're going to encounter. And it's sort of a mix of things that are caused by the storm, the damage, the wind, the flooding. But then you have situations like this where there could be health issues that were like, can be underlying. Yeah, absolutely. And so now all of a sudden, when you really need that urgent care, the infrastructure is damaged. And we see that. We see that with dogs that have cancers. And, and, and what will happen is the stress of the storm, the stress of, of everything going on gets to the point where it pushes the animal over the edge. And so, you know, treatments and supportive care are needed. Some only experience like the hurricane itself. Some experience the hurricane and the flood three days later. You know, some in- encountered the flood during the storm, you know, having water fill their living room and they're trying to find things to, to kind of like tread water with that float. And one of the scary things is that like, so we see the initial stuff like injuries, illnesses, whether the illnesses are stress related, exposure related, things like that. But what'll happen in the area is as time goes on, they'll see some of these things that are related to standing water. So we might see some leptospirosis, we might see rabies, we might see these things that aren't going to show up right away. And so truly like the recovery is so many layers so there's recovering the area the housing the infrastructure but then there's also like even on the animal side there's a recovery piece you know like veterinarians trying to get back online when their their house has been destroyed right that's what i was thinking is not only these veterinarians trying to get their clinics back online and get their clinics back to working where they can see patients but if they lost everything at home in the process then then you know there, there's like you said there's a lot of layers there yeah and like you know their staff or impacted. Right. Yeah, Their staff story. might have lost everything. And and then that's the thing too that's hard because like say the clinic's destroyed. So now how do you employ your staff when you're trying to get your house, your business, all these things back online? And and that's a lot of what a lot of people experience down there. So many businesses were destroyed. So you have these individuals that lost everything and including their job, including right. their stability. And, and so it's, it's really like hard to imagine to some degree, all these things that are going on because it it's just truly so many layers, but at the same time, you know, from our perspective, we did a lot of little things that had a lot of huge impact for us and for them. I mean, you can't help but feel their pain as they're talking about these things they experienced. And there was the one couple that you know, they lost everything and they're staying with friends. Well, they went back to check on the house and there were these two loose dogs. So they caught the dogs and took them with them because they wanted to make sure that they were fed and cared for. And and that's one of the things why it's important to have a team like us and who better than a college of veterinary medicine to support that because there is a huge need. And like so many, so many hurricanes like Katrina, you know, there were so many people that didn't evacuate because their animals couldn't come with them. And one of the things I've noticed actually sort of in this media frenzy is that I thought it was common knowledge that so many states have started, especially coastal states in the Southeast, on the Gulf, really on the Atlantic coast as well, set up pet friendly shelters. Right. Are you finding that's not common knowledge? It's not. 
Oh, spread the word, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> you can because... take your pets with you. Get out of there. And, and that's the thing, because people don't know, they just throw the animal in the car. Well, the thing is, everybody should have a plan. And that plan should include, if something's coming, extra medications, extra food, extra water, things like that, and, and a crate, some kind of housing unit, because you might find yourself in a hotel room. You might find yourself sure. in a, a, a shelter. This way, you can keep your pet safe and keep your pet with you, because that's the goal. And, and so these are things that are so important because, I mean, there were people, Fort Myers Beach, there was an individual who had two pet pigs. And unfortunately, there really wasn't a good mechanism and, and they're fairly large animals in her case. And so she wouldn't leave. She was kind of living in a deteriorated structure that was damaged, but she didn't want to leave the pigs behind and understandably so. And, and so we're moving more in the animal emergency world to really helping counties understand and emergency management understand, like this needs to be considered. Right. If you want people to evacuate and stay safe, then we have to make sure that we're providing safety and shelter for the animals as well. Because, I mean, I can relate to that. I wouldn't leave and just, you know, leave leave Wrigley at home and say, good luck, buddy. So I can completely empathize with, with where these people are coming from. So it's good that in the aftermath, that word is starting to get out of, you know, if we want to keep people safe and we want people to leave when we say evacuate, then we have to make sure that the pets are included and that there's infrastructure there for them as well. What, what are they with, with pigs though? How are we going to house pigs? <laughs> Well, see, that's the other side of it, where the <laughs> county, as part of their annual planning, they need to look at the demographic of their county and what kind of animals and how much is livestock, how much is this, that, or the other, because you have to anticipate the need. What would wind up happening in this case is you could create kind of a, a square pen of sorts with cattle gates and things like that, but it you know makes for an interesting challenge to try to sort that out. And that's kind of the other side of some of the things that I'm doing while I'm on deployment is I'm in communication with the agricultural response team. And I'm like, hey, I got this call about this pig and, and you know, what can we provide? You know, is there somebody that can bring stuff to her or is there some way that we can get supplies to her at a shelter? Sometimes it's sort of, you have to be very creative because it's not an everyday occurrence, it's not going to be a need every time, but at any given time, there's hundreds of trucks hauling, you know, cattle or these large trailers that are hauling horses. And unfortunately, accidents happen. And so that's why it's so important, you know, for counties to do annual disaster exercises and really look at their plan. And same thing from a veterinary perspective. I didn't really know who I would contact if I needed something as a veterinary practitioner until I started getting emergency management training. Okay. So FEMA offers all these free trainings, but until I did those, when I worked for a county shelter and I actually had emergency management duties, they put me through all these trainings and suddenly I realized, wow, this is amazing. Like I didn't even know I could ask for this help, but even today. As a veterinary practitioner, everybody I talk to, I recommend that they reach out to their emergency management office and find out who their animal contacts are. For the most part, you're going to find that your local municipal animal shelter or animal control 
is going to be your first line of contact. And then, of course, the Florida Veterinary Medical Association is also connected to the state. So there's ways where those requests can be made through that as well. But it, it's one of those things that, you know, as time goes on, it's really becoming more and more eye-opening how we're trying to get the message out to the FEMA and to the members and to, to veterinarians in the state that like, hey, here's the things you should be doing before hurricane season. And, and here's, you know, you got to have a sustainability plan. You have to have the plan in place for how you're going to continue business in the event of something like this. You know, do you sure. have electronic records? Do you have a way to power that system or do you lose all records when everything goes down? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, I just, if there was no, I could, I, I mean, mine's cloud-based, so I could get it if there was cell phone service. But if it knocked out all that, all that infrastructure, I think I would lose all my records. Exactly. And it's, and it's a challenge because like even us on deployment, like there's times where the cell service is patchy. Right. So you don't have data service, but you can oh, make a yeah. phone call. It was, oh, it was days before I think Josh and I could talk to each other because you know, we might get like some patchy here and there service, but it was, it was knocked out. Ian's path was so kind of distinct that it wasn't so much like Irma. Irma is we traveled South to Key West. There was not a tree branch untouched in the state. Oh no, we got hit up here in Gainesville. And I, that's still, I'll say the scariest, one of the most scary experiences in my entire life. We had a tornado come through the backyard that ripped the top off of our oak tree and threw it down about 30 feet from our bedroom window. And it was terrifying. Yeah, it, that was a bad one. And, and I mean, though Ian was rough, like right. it wasn't until we got into the area. And, and it's one of these strange things because it's so surreal First off, you know, we're nobody knows where we're going. And the first thing we notice is suddenly our lead vehicle pulls off and everybody's like, what's wrong? And he's like, I've lost GPS and I can't make a phone call to tell anybody. Oh, no. <laughs> and we have these like walkie talkie radios, but sometimes they're not great because the battery dies and what have you. So we had to stop and do that. Luckily, there was somebody in the group that had gps service so we were able to get back on track and then of course you see why because now we're driving down the road and basically it's asphalt and water oh wow and 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 you're literally like normally there's like a little ditch or whatever on the side of the road no there's no ditch it's just road and just water water and then the big huge center median has trees but those trees are in three or four feet of water Wow. And and so it was like water everywhere. And and then at one point, there was a house off to the right next to like a bridge over the interstate. And you just sort of like look over and you're like, oh, my gosh, that that that's a roof. And I don't see the house. Oh, wow. So like this house was completely submerged. And, and so you're seeing things like that as you're going in. And then, you know, as you get closer, of course, you can see for miles because like the trees are just leveled and you can see where the tornadoes come through because like there'll be these little twists in the trees. So it's just such massive devastation. And of course, it's real dramatic, you know, like gas stations. Most of those roofs over the pumps are pretty light. Sure. And, and so they just get twisted around like a piece, like a toy, like a piece, you know, of foil and just twisted around. And one of the pictures, Dane, one of our other logistics guys sent us a picture and he's at this gas station where it looks like 
the roof is falling into the back of the truck as he's fueling it. Oh my god. <laughs> so... The messaging here being, you know, when when there's a storm like this coming and they say evacuate, a lot of crazy things can happen. So being mindful of that. I know that was extra challenging with Ian though because like you said you were planning on going to Tampa. I think everybody saw this going to Tampa and it made this last minute turn. So I think it became extra devastating, extra challenging for people, a lot more risk to human and animal life because it happens so fast. And you don't think that with a hurricane. They don't happen fast. You see them coming. But this one made an unexpected turn. Yeah. And and that was one of the things, too, is that to some degree, like, it's a balance. So I've been around hurricanes from the Miami, South Florida perspective. And then, of course, now here in Gainesville. But for the early years of college, I went to college in Mobile, Alabama, and that's where I really got an appreciation for the Gulf. Anything that comes through the Gulf is just the warm waters. It's truly the perfect storm, and they do horrible things. You think about, man, you know, you really got to get out of the way. The problem is timing is everything. Right. And I think that's something I've talked to several of the clients And they were like, honestly, by the time they told us Mm -hmm. that this thing was coming, we were either going to get stuck in a flood on the road or we're going to get injured on the road trying to get out. Right. And they haven't seen a storm situation like that since 2004. I was going to say, yeah, it's been years. Charlie fit inside the eye of what was Ian. Oh, my gosh. And and the interesting comparison is that Charlie and Gene came through the state of Florida the same year, and Charlie followed Ian's path, and Gene followed Nicole's path. Interesting, interesting. And for anyone not in Florida, Nicole just came through. And that was our, our Thanksgiving tropical storm, which was a new experience for me. I don't know that I've ever experienced a storm like that this late in the year, but that had to have you know, shook you up a little bit going, really, another one? We just got back. But fortunately, that one stuck to a category one and then quickly dropped to its tropical storm. And so a lot of wind and rain, but not nearly the type of devastation we saw with a storm like Ian. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, it's been since Gene and Charlie that we've seen anything like that. So it's like kind of one of those things where like 20 plus years goes by. Yeah, I was going to say, gosh, is that how long ago 2004 was? Think of, yeah. No wonder I can't remember when the last time we recorded together was. No, it's it's crazy how it all runs together. <laughs> well, you know, I, I could sit here and talk to you for two more hours about this because the experience is fascinating, especially from the medical side. You know, I heard about the logistics side, but not as much from the medical side other than some of the the cool stories like, yeah, we're just waiting on the goats to show up. But, you know, kind of in the interest of time, let's talk about when you knew it was time to go. When did the water start to recede? The infrastructure came back online. You were starting to see things kind of stabilize. What cued you in to say, we came here and we did what we intended to do, and now it's time to turn it back over to the local veterinary infrastructure. So when we arrived and set up camp, and it was about 9 p.m. when the county put out the notification that we were available the next morning on Tuesday, basically what you see right away is an immense amount of cases. Like the first day was close to 40 cases. Holy smokes. How many veterinarians? Uh, that day was three. Oh, oh God. That's, that's a lot of cases. 
And, and that's when I kind of started coordinating to try to get some volunteers because I could see it was going to be intense. And luckily we have a state certified veterinarian or technician association, as well as the FEMA. So they started working to get us volunteers. And so what we were able to do is to get enough help because the caseload just kept climbing. And I mean, these aren't just, oh, hey, can you look at this? Is it okay? Oh yeah, sure. It's fine. These were like cases that took some time, had to get some history, had to make treatment plans, and some cases had to administer some treatments. So what happened was we started on Tuesday and we were consistently high caseloads every day. And then we kind of went through the weekend and Sunday was a little bit of a slower day. I say slower, but it's still like 30 plus cases. Oh my goodness. And, and then what we saw as we went into the next week the cases started dropping off. We started hearing that practices were open. And so that's one of the other cool things. So I sent my logistics team out to kind of check on these practices. Is there anything they need? You know, where are they at with things? Because we, and we don't charge. And so we don't want to be competition. And so what we try to do is start sending out feelers to see what's, what's the local community looking like? Are they able to do things? What we see is we know in the field that there's an issue with access to care. And so we started to see more of this transition away from true medical need to, well, you know, maybe this is something that you need to be managed by your general practitioner because we're only here for temporary. And so that's kind of what we do is we sort of look at that. Once we know the local practices are online, I'm in communication with the veterinarians who sought out my contact information. And so I'm like, hey, look, this is what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? How are you doing with your caseloads? And so we're always kind of trying to work and, and make sure that we're providing support and not inhibiting and not, you know, competing. And, and so with that, we kind of moved away from and, and started scaling down and preparing to depart for home. And pretty much everybody was in agreement, the local practitioners, the FEMA, that, you know, it was time for us to scale down and move on. And, and so I would say that one interesting thing I would bring up, which has been looked at in other places, is one of our team members, as you know, <laughs> adopted a kitten. There were a lot of kittens that were displaced, and we did a lot of kitten exams. Yes. I'm going to vaccinate that kitten later today. <laughs> She'll be a lot nicer than she was for her first round of vaccines. Oh, I heard she was not real happy about it the first time. She was not. She had to get a lot of hugs. She got a lot of hugs. But but was interesting to see was, you know, in my mind, I think about infectious disease and contamination with her, you know, hanging around the whole time being so young. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was really neat to see the human dynamic. So in the evenings, we kind of have sort of our living area. We have like the little camp folding chairs. And, and so what we do is we generally sit around in a circle, kind of discuss the day and the highlights and things like that. Just debrief, decompress. And one of the things that was great about this kitten is she was passed around to everybody. By the end of the trip, she was pretty much bulletproof because <laughs> like she is unaffected by anything. And perfectly happy to be held like a baby. <laughs> but it was neat because the state of Mississippi did a, kind of a study where they took service dogs into the emergency operations center. And this is a place where people in some cases are having to live there with their family and, and, and stay in the building without leaving for days. And they brought in service dogs 
and they were talking about how the whole dynamic in the room changed because people could pet animals and touch animals and spend time with animals. And so I witnessed the same with this little kitten and passing her around because, you know, the day is hard. You're feeling the pain of these people and, and it's like a rush of emotions. Like it's like all the stages of grief and happiness all at once, because like you feel like you wish you could do more or there's times where you feel like you didn't do enough. And, and there's times where you're like, this was amazing. I can't believe this silly little thing, just telling them that the animal's okay like just was like giving them a million dollars. And and I mean, don't get me wrong, it is exhausting. And I probably slept for two days after we returned. I'm surprised it was only two days. <laughs> but but it is one of those things where it's it's a lot. And I mean, it's just, you know, you look at the devastation that these people experienced and like their whole lives are just changed permanently in in a period of, you know, 24 hours, right? So it's it's one of those things that's just kind of mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, humbling. Well, you know, of course, as these storms come through, this is an avenue of support that you guys can provide. And is are you is it primarily Florida or does the team extend through the southeast or is it kind of up in the air depending on what happens? It, so we can actually be requested by other states. So like other states can request our capabilities. And so that's kind of one of the neat things about it is that, you know, we are that accessible. And but there again, right, it's a matter of of knowing what the need is. And, and what you're going to find is there's a lot of veterinary colleges that have some form of response team. You know, Texas A&M has a response team as well. They tend to stick more towards Texas and California area. And it's mostly because they have, like us, they have a very well-developed team and a well-developed cache of equipment. UC Davis is one of the schools that's trying to get something up and running because clearly with fires and things like that. But it's very interesting because the funding for these types of things is not always there. And so it's hard to kind of prepare and be at the ready because the cost of things. And, you know, it's interesting, like looking at my medical cache, it's, it's very limited, but when you tell people how much that limited supply costs it's pretty eye-popping because you're like you pay that much oh yeah as somebody who works out of her suv yeah I, sometimes i look at it and i'm like this doesn't look like that much stuff but there's a good bit of uh, you know value riding around here exactly and and so it's it's amazing but we did get to try some other things out too. Like this was the first time that we actually had to request more supplies. Okay. And it worked out perfectly where what we did midway through the deployment, we had some individuals that came down from the college that needed to go back. And so what they did was we had some coming in and those going back. So as those came in, they brought vehicles with them and then they were able to go back. And so the ones coming in were able to bring us some additional supplies and medications and things like that. Okay. So we were able to try that out. And then even further, something that's always been discussed, but we've never had to do, some of those medications we ran out of. And so what we were able to do was midway through the second week, I was able to get some supplies overnighted. Okay. And so we were able to test that out and that worked really well. And, and so there's all these different parts of pieces that you just don't think about. And, and there's so many layers of like the requests, you know, one of the things that we always try to do is bring a large animal clinician with us 
because there's oftentimes something like, hey, can you just look at this cow? Or like, can you just look at this horse? Like, I don't know that it needs anything medical or tell me if I need to take it somewhere. And so this time we didn't have a large animal clinician with us. But that's the thing is you have organizations that would love to support sending pharmaceuticals, sending veterinarians, sending whatever. And, and so it's amazing sort of the resources that come out of these things and the donations, right? So of course, you know, our team's gotten a ton of donations to kind of help support the efforts and get us through so that we can continue on and keep doing the work that we do. And we're, you can hear your passion come through the, the excitement, you know, of course, in context with the devastation, but that you were able to go through and help so many people and provide such a valuable service. And I love that we're here talking again, because we talked about it a little bit last year. Irma had kind of gone through, we were a little bit distanced from that. But now having such a recent experience and you know, everything really coming together, people working together in ways that we don't always see to create this hugely necessary, hugely important service to help people who lost everything. I, like I said, I could sit here and talk to you about it for two more hours. And I want to hear all the stories of, of, you know, all the dogs that you saw. And I am happy I get to go see little kitten later this afternoon. She, she is bulletproof. I've met her once and yes, you can hold her like a baby and she's just, she's sassy though. Like she's still, she's still sassy. She is sassy. But thank you so much for, for coming on and for sharing all of the stories and all of the information. And hopefully this will help get the word out that when there is a disaster situation, there's resources out there that can be requested through various avenues and kind of prompt people to find out what their emergency system is and how to go about that so that they know, you know, they're not abandoned. There's people out there who are ready and willing and happy to support them. Exactly. Thank you. All right. Is everybody still with us? I hope you guys had as much fun with that interview as I did. So many interesting stories and it's just eye-opening to hear what some of the people and the pets went through with Hurricane Ian. A huge thank you to Dr. Garcia for coming out and talking to me. Thank you to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, It's a great day.